Hebrews chapter two, we're gonna start in verse one, go all the way through verse nine. Our specific stuff for our pastors today is five through nine, but let's, let's put it all in context so we go, uh, we know what's going on here. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders, various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Here's our passage for today. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while, Lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Let's pray. Father, what a passage this is. There's a part of me that wants to just sit and, and, and read it 14 more times to be able to just sit and savor the magnitude of what these words imply. That we have had death swallowed up so that we don't have to experience it. So that the death that we deserve can be traded in for new life in you. And Father, I know that there are many people who showed up today with a desperate prayer out to you to send them a sign, to show them that you're still there, to keep a promise that you've made to them. And I pray that today, Jesus, they understand, realize, and confirm in their heart that you are, in fact, a God who is still trustworthy, that you, in fact, are a God who is willing to go to unimaginable length to show them the significance they have in your kingdom, that they are not an afterthought, that we and you would miss them if they circumvented your call on their life and checked out too soon. Father, I pray that by the preaching of your word, you would humble us to see you for the God you are, far above and lifted up, exalted, at the right hand of God at this very moment. But at the same time, I pray that you would lift us up out of our shame, guilt, and the mire that we put ourselves in because of our own sin, and that you would show us by the preaching of your word today who we are in you, that we are not evil, that in you we are not destitute, that in you we are not lost, that in you we are not hopeless, that in you we are not destined for hell, but in you we are more than conquerors by your blood. So today I pray that you would cover every word I say by the power of your resurrection. In your name, amen. 
so to recap and make sure we're all on the same page before we get ready to, to dive into our passage today, what this author has been doing is he's explaining to this little house church, which is made up of primarily Jewish people who have now put their faith in Christ. So now they're not primarily Jewish people, they're Christian people who also have a Jewish heritage. He's explaining to them how to not let go of the faith that they have in Jesus. Because this was a group of people who experienced some of the stuff kind of like what we experienced. They started out with this new relationship with Jesus. And at first, woo-wee, it was white hot. Like, I love Jesus. I'll go to the far ends of the world to go and serve Jesus. I love Jesus. But then life happened. Anybody can relate to that? Like, like life happens. And you, and you start to go, well, you know, you know this Jesus thing, because it's still what I thought it was going to be. You know, it's, it's 50 minutes later, and, and, you know, it hasn't worked out the way I thought it would. And this is kind of where these people are at. And he's continuing over and over and over again through the book of Hebrews. You're going to pick up on this recurring phrase. And it kind of shows up in different ways. But he's telling them, hold fast. Do not let go of what you have in Jesus. Do not let go. Do not let go. That's why in those first couple of passages that we read in chapter 2, he says, therefore, pay much closer attention to what you've heard about this Jesus, lest you drift away from it. And then he goes to explain to them that if you drift away from it, you're neglecting this great salvation. He says, if you neglect this salvation, don't pay attention. You're going to drift into destruction. And what he's going to do, he continues to do this over and over and over again, is he is trying to help them understand that what they have in Jesus is not something to neglect. That's why he says what he says in our passage. He asks this question and he asks it knowing that they know the answer. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Well, the answer that they would have known that we all know is that we don't. That if I neglect this, I, I don't escape. And so he's flashing a red warning sign to his congregation. And I would flash a red warning sign to our congregation as well is, is to ask us the question, is the salvation, if you, are, if you say, yes, I am in Christ, is this a salvation that you are nurturing, that you are paying attention to, or is this a salvation that you are neglecting? And if you were here and you had not put your faith and your hope and your trust in Jesus, right now in this moment, God's word tells us very plainly that this is salvation you have purposely chosen to say, I'm good without. And that's neglecting. And so today, I want us to realize how he continues to prove this point. So what he does, and when I talk about the author of this book in Hebrews, it's better really for us to understand that he's not really an author. He really is the pastor to this Hebrew church. All right, so he's the pastor. Again, their local context of what would have been happening in this moment is they're just this ragtag group of brand new Christians. They came from a Jewish heritage, which Jesus was a Jew. There's a big lineage, the whole Torah, the first you know, half of the Bible, the old covenant, all of that stuff is their family, their history, their story. So they have a baseline understanding of who God is and what he's about. Now Jesus has come and he's made what was a black and white life in living color because now everything finds its completion in Jesus. But at the same time, they're kind of being pushed down. They're kind of being segregated out because people are okay with them believing in God, but they are not okay with them believing that Jesus is the son of God. Sound familiar? And so as all this is happening, he's continued to go, don't neglect your salvation. And here's another reason why you shouldn't. Don't neglect your salvation. And here's 15 more reasons why you shouldn't. And what we see, even in our passage here, if you look at verse five, is him starting once again, that same pattern. Jesus is amazing. Jesus is great. Do not neglect Jesus. And then in verse five, if you're looking at it in your Bible, go ahead and look at it. What he says is back into this whole stuff about angels, right? <laughs> and if you're like me, you read this and you go, okay, pastor, we got it. 
Jesus is better than angels. Move on. Like you, I know you guys out there, you probably never admit this because you're super saved, but sometimes I belabor points. You're sitting out there in your chairs going, Trent, we got it. Like, quit yelling at us. We understand. And I think maybe they see him go back again to angels and they're like, dude, we get it. Like, Jesus is better than angels. Why do you keep making this point? And what does the fact that Jesus is better than angels have to do with us neglecting our faith? So these, these angels, they're good, but Jesus is great. What does that have to do with us neglecting our faith? And this is a huge question. We've gotta be able to figure out and answer this question because this whole question and this, these things are good and this is great in Jesus, this is gonna to continue to come up over and over and over again in the book of Hebrews. Jesus is gonna inspire this pastor to explain him to these people. And he's gonna use a bunch of different things to do it. He's gonna use Moses. He's gonna use Abraham. He's gonna use the old covenant and the priestly order that things would work. He's gonna use the rest that the nation of Israel had when they were wandering through the wilderness. He's gonna use all these things. Now, here's what I want you to understand. He used angels, he used Moses, he used Abraham, he used the priestly order, he used rest in the wilderness. He used all these things and all of these things are good things. And so this author is making this point, this pastor is making this point that all of these good things are good things, but Jesus is the great thing, which again, takes us to the question, okay, what does, there are some really good things in life, but Jesus is the great thing, have to do with me neglecting my salvation? We have to answer that question. And in order to answer that question, I wanna take you to a parable that Jesus taught. If you got your Bible, go to the book of Luke. Specifically, go to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. Jesus is gonna answer that question for us. Matthew, Mark, Luke, 14. Jump on down to verse 16, 14, 16. Again, the question we're asking is, what does, there are good things in life, but Jesus is the great thing, have to do with me neglecting my faith in Jesus as a great thing. Here's his answer in form of a parable. 16, but he said to him, Jesus talking to somebody else, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make, let's say it together, excuses. Tell your neighbor, I bet you got some excuses. I bet you got one of those. <laughs> all right. So they all had excuses. Keep going. The first said to him, I have bought a field. That's a big deal. And I must go out to see it. Please have me excused. Then the other said, I bought five yoke of oxen. That's a lot of ox. And I need to go examine them. Please have me excused. The other said, this is a big deal. I have married a wife. And therefore, I cannot come. That's a, I mean, again, you know, real estate's one thing, ox are one thing. A woman, uh, and this is like a honey. He's like, I can't. I got my honeymoon. And again, that's from what I see here, it's still not a good enough excuse. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry. 
And he said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city to bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the servant said, sir, uh, what you have commanded has been done and there is room. And the master said to the servant, go even further, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. Now, verse 24 should make you feel a little nervous. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my banquet. Now, why didn't they get to taste of the banquet? Because of what? Excuses. All right? Now, remember, our question is what does neglecting a great thing for a good thing have to do with my salvation? Jesus explains it in this parable. The point that he is trying to make is this. You are much more in danger of neglecting your salvation from good things than bad things. His way of telling this parable is explaining the point, and this is why it continues to come up in Hebrews. More people will miss out on heaven because of good things than evil, wicked, disgusting, shameful, broken, obviously sinful things. See, the thing about very sinful, bad things is that when you do those bad things, what do you feel? Bad, right? But how many of you are feeling bad when you buy a new house? Nobody's feeling bad when they get engaged. Nobody's feeling bad when your kid graduates high school. We don't feel bad at those things. But what the, what the author of Hebrews is making the point of is the same point that the one who inspired him to write it made is that many people will miss out on heaven, will miss the face of the father, will not sit around that great table and experience that great banquet, not because of the evil things that they did, but because of the good things that they made the greatest thing and they missed out on the banquet. He's telling them that there are good things of this world and those good things of the world will keep more people out of heaven than the bad things. And that should wake us all up because that's our life. That's us. This is the warning that the author of Hebrews is going to continue to give. This is why we're kind of going like, why are we talking about angels again? Because in their context, an angel was another one of the good things they were tempted to look to and think about and care about and have be this big part of their life. The same way Jesus tells this parable, he's going, real estate's awesome, big guy. Ox are cool. Your wife, like, Way to go, like enjoy your honeymoon. But you've been invited into something great and to neglect the great thing for the sake of your good thing is to miss out completely. And so he issues this warning and I would issue this warning to us because many of you in this room, you're not people who are like going to start a strip club next week. Most of you in this room are not crystal meth addicts. Most of you in this room are not sex trafficking. Most of you in this room are not just wicked, vile, depraved, evil people thinking and plotting about being serial. Most of you in this room are people whose lives are filled with what? Good things. And I'm, again, I'm trying to, like the pastor of Hebrews, trying to kind of push that red warning alert button. And this, is, this should be, I'm not trying to freak you out or make you really scared this morning, but those of you who have way more good things in your life, Look, there's a reason why Jesus said, not it is really hard, but it is impossible for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven. To which all of his disciples are you know, sitting down on the hillside going, <laughs> who can get saved then, Jesus? And Jesus answers back, with man, it is 100% impossible. But with God, all things, all things are possible. And this should make us go, okay, well, man, we're, we're good Americans. We got food on our table. We got food in the pantry. We got all sorts of good things. We got good kids sometimes. We got a good marriage most of the time. 
we got a lot of good things in our life. But how in the world do we keep these good things from becoming our great things? That's the big problem that we're going to lean into today. So if you've got a Bible, let's, let's jump down to verse 5. He starts out, he gets back into this whole angels thing. Again, angels with the good thing. He's saying, don't pay attention to the good thing so much that you miss out on the great thing. It was not to angels that God subjected. That's the underlying word. We need to figure that one out. We've got to understand what that means to understand the rest of our whole passage. It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. Okay? What he's saying here, to sum this up as fast as I can, he's saying, God did not say that angels are going to be the ones who are in charge of the world. That's what the whole subjected thing means. It's it's saying that that the angels look at the world and the world is the angels' subjects. He's saying God never, from the beginning to now and even to the age to come, God's plan was never that angels would rule the world. He goes on. It has been testified somewhere. He's, he's, he's just made the point. God's plan is not that angels are in charge. Let me prove it to you, not by my own eloquence, but I'm going to prove it to you by quoting scripture, which is if somebody's going to prove a point to you, that's the way to do it. It has been testified somewhere. And he's not saying it's been testified somewhere because he's old and he can't remember where it's at. He's saying it's been testified somewhere as a way of saying everybody knows that this is what it says. And then he quotes Psalm chapter eight, verses four through six. This is where this is coming from. Psalm 8, chapters 4 through 6. He's quoting this to prove that point that angels aren't supposed to be the ones who are in charge of the world. It's actually somebody else. We're going to figure out who he thinks that is. This is what he quotes. It's been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? Goes on. Continue out the quotation. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. There's that whole thing, lower than the angels. And you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything, there's that word again, in subjection under his feet. Now, we should be hearing this, we should be reading this and asking the same question that the people who in the little house church of the Hebrew people, they were started asking. Okay, well, who is his? Whose feet? Are we talking about Jesus' feet? You just got talking to Jesus about, but like, again, remember, they're what kind of people? They're Jewish people. Who is their big guy? Who's their superhero? King David. They all know that this is a quote from Psalm chapter eight. They've got that memorized likely. If you go back to this Psalm, what you see is this is a Psalm that David probably wrote on a camping trip. The Psalm starts out and he's he's talking about how awesome babies are. And then there's a passage that's right before verse four. He says, I look to the skies. I see the heavens. I see the stars in the sky and the moon. David has got his eye open and he starts writing this song as he is on, on a clear night sky is gazing up at the heavens. And the cry out of his heart is, as I look at this, what is man, God, that you are mindful of me? You are the one who put the stars in the sky. You are the creator of the galaxies And you think about me and care for me and you put me in charge. You made us lower than the angels to rule and subdue and to take care of this earth and this planet. God, who are you that you think about us? See, when the Hebrews read this, they would have gone, well, we know this psalm. And we know this psalm is talking about mankind being the ones who rule and reign over planet earth. Who, who have governance over this, who, who God from the beginning, you know, this is going back to the theology of both David and the theology of the, the pastor who's leading from the Hebrew side of stuff. This is why Genesis one twenty six says these words. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let him have dominion 
This word implies sub, the things will be subjected to him. Dominion is rule. Dominion is reign. So God says, yes, I am creator. Yes, I'm the one who made all of this, but I am making you, mankind, to have a unique and significant role to be the, the king and the queen of this existence and to rule and to reign and have dominion here where you take the rules that I give to you and you make sure they are lived out in this population. He says, I'm giving you dominion over fish of the sea, birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. He goes on. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And here's what his blessing is. His blessing is part of him pouring out this invitation to them. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That's another rule and reign world. Subdue it and have, there's that word again, dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. See, David read this. That's why David wrote what he wrote. He's saying, God, your original intent, this is wild. God's original intent for mankind was to lead, rule and reign on this planet in a way that glorified and magnified him for the true loving kind caring God that he actually is and mankind got that right for about half a chapter in Genesis before we went and ate the whole fruit salad and just blew everything up and from then intermingled between man's ruling and reigning and governing on earth has been sin and so what was supposed to be a God honoring rule and reign turned into tyranny and manipulation as sin found itself echoing and reverberating all around our planet. God's original intent was for them to rule and to reign with his love, with his guidance, with his care, and they ruined it and sin enters the picture. So what the author of Hebrews is doing here is he's saying, remember guys, it's not to angels that God said that the angels were gonna be the ones who are out here just ruling and reigning on the earth. God actually said that it was gonna be us to which the people are like, yeah, that would be nice. And he goes on to explain some things about that. Hebrews chapter two, verse eight. He says, he's, he quotes it and then he starts to explain because he knows their, their wheels are starting to turn and they're getting questions about what in the world does this mean? He says, now I'm putting everything in subjection to him. He left nothing outside of his control. Now this is where theologians, scholars, they go kind of two ways here. Some people see this quote from the Psalms and see this passage here and they go, this is all about Jesus. And it has nothing to do with mankind. But again, I just read you Genesis 1. And what did God tell Adam and Eve, original creation, that they were going to do? Rule, reign, have dominion. And so there's two schools of thoughts. You know, theologians are kind of split. I have three commentaries in my office on the book of Hebrews. Two go to the place where they say this is about um, mankind and Jesus being the ultimate fulfillment of what mankind was supposed to do. And then one goes, no, this is all about Jesus. I'm from the side that says, no, this is about mankind and how Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of what mankind could never do. So when I see this passage here, it says, now I'm putting, in, putting everything in subjection to him, I read in mankind. And he left nothing outside of his control, I read mankind. So it would say, now I'm putting everything in mankind's in subjection to mankind, he left nothing outside of mankind's control. Now, track with me. This is where all this is hopefully going to start making sense for your practical everyday life in McDonough, Georgia. When the people in the book of Hebrews at this little small church would have heard this, that, that God has put everything in subjection to them and there is nothing outside of their control, they would have looked around 
and spit out their coffee. And said, that's garbage. There's no way. You think we're in control here? Like we used to at least be Jewish and that had, people had some sort of respect for us, but now we're Christians. We're not invited to Thanksgiving anymore. Like people, people are yelling at us. People, people are thinking we're worshiping some kind of crazy God who's three in one. Our family's abandoning us. Rome thinks that we're the problem. They just bypass all the other things and they, 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 they're blaming us for these things. We're isolated. We're beginning to live in poverty. We're under the thumb of Rome and then we're under the thumb, thumb of the, the Roman or the Jewish religious mess that's up here. We're down here on the bottom and we're not in control of anything. What do you mean? Everything is in subjection to us and, and nothing is outside of our control. This is ridiculous. And see, the pastor who writes this to them is a good pastor. He writes the truth and he explains the truth and he knows that they're gonna have questions about the truth, which is why he says what he says next. At present, we do not see everything in subjection. him. He's clearing it up really quick. It's like, hey, I know what you're thinking. You're looking around. You're going like, bro, it doesn't look like we're in charge. doesn't look like we're leading this whole thing. People are getting ready to kind of come in and, you know, Nero's getting ready to blame us on all the bad things that are happening. It's going to be burned up and we're going to be really jacked up because we're the ones who are subject to what Rome is doing to us. And he says, I get it. At this present moment, you do not see, like, it does not seem like you're the king's. And you're the queens. It does not seem like you're in charge. It doesn't seem like everything is in subjection to him now, period. But we see him. Now, this, if scholars go back and forth and they go, okay, was this first part where he's quoting the Psalm and he's quoting this stuff right here? Is that talking about Jesus or is that talking about mankind? Where there's two different schools of thinking there, there's only one school of thinking and all scholars, all theologians and pastors included are all in unison that when it says, but we see him, that's talking about Jesus explicitly. And I think that again, this is part of why I think he's not talking about Jesus the entire time because this doesn't make sense. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to Jesus, but we see Jesus. That doesn't make sense. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Jesus. Mankind, but we see mankind. That doesn't make sense either. It only makes sense if it's at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to mankind, but we see Jesus. That's the only way that passage makes any sense is to see Jesus. Despite me looking around at my life and seeing so much out of control, I see Jesus. Despite me looking around at my own health and going, body, why can't you do what I need you to do? Cancer, why can't you leave me? Uh, bladder, why can't you do what you're supposed to do the right way? Brain, why can't you think what you're supposed to think? I look around and I see things that are not subjected to me and I cannot figure out how these things work or operate. I can't control, as much as I love this control, I can't control it. I look around and I see an economy that is not in subjection to me. I don't rule and reign and govern over the economy. I look around and I see the school system that my kids are in and I wish I could change things, but it's not subjected to me. I look around and I see my kids even, whether they're young or whether they're old, they're still, I can't really control them at the end of the day. I can pray for them. I can want them to do things, but I can't make them subjective to me. I can't make my boss subject to me. I can't make my wife or my husband subjected to me so that they obey and I can control them the way I want to control them. None of these things in life seem like that I am the one who is subjected. I'm the one who's ruling over these things that happen down here on planet earth. And he says, but we see Jesus. His way of saying right now, and this is what you can relate to right now, you don't see what you want to see, but you need to see Jesus. 
He's saying, it doesn't look like what you want it to look like. But see Jesus. It's kind of his way of saying it. And this is kind of harsh to hear. He's saying, you don't see things like you want to see them. It's not looking like what you want it to look like. So what? See Jesus. So what? When Daniel, do you think Daniel was like, man, I just really don't want to see lions. I just don't, I just don't, I just really don't want to be in there. Um, I got a cat allergy. I don't want to be up in there with these things. He said, I, I know Daniel doesn't want to see lions, but he locks eyes on God. He locks eyes on his heavenly father and he sees their mouth shut. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're not going, you know what I really want to see? I want to see some flames. Turn it up, Nebuchadnezzar. Let's go. Come on. He's not out here. You know, those boys are like, they don't want to see flames. So what? And then they're in the fire. What do they see? They see the son of man. It's, it's, a, it's an Old Testament story of saying, so what? Flames. See Jesus right there. You got the disciples. Jesus has just been crucified, killed. Their Messiah, their master, the person who was leading them through this whole entire thing. They've just seen him whipped, beaten, and killed. And everybody knows that they're his boys. And their tails are up in some upper room, locked, doors locked, windows drawn, curtains down, quarantined themselves off, praying and hoping, not knowing what in the world next to do. A situation that they don't want to see. I can't go see my family. We can't get out on the streets. We can't go continue this mission. All this thing that we just put three years of our hope and our life in, we just saw him dead. Now we're up in here and we're just kind of sitting around twiddling our thumbs, not knowing what to do. But in walks Jesus. So what? You're quarantined. In walks Jesus. And Jesus goes, what's up, guys? I don't know if he pulls up what he's got on. He shows them the place in the side. He shows them the nails. Somebody in the room was still doubting, though. And they said, are you sure you're not just like a ghost thing or something? And this is crazy that you're just testing Jesus like this. I don't know why he didn't just like disintegrate them, pull a Infinity Wars thing and just right there in a the room. But Jesus says, bring me some fish. He says, I'll prove it to you. Let me taste some fish. Ghosts don't eat. Which is wild that these guys are in this moment. <laughs> Prior to Jesus walking into the room, they, they had just seen the worst possible thing to see. And now they see the best possible thing to see. And it's like, Jesus is like, I shouldn't have to taste fish for you. I just tasted death for you. And, and, and this is this moment that they're in. And for us in our lives, guys, we got to get this. There are going to be times in this life where you're going to look around at your circumstances and you're going to go, this is not what I want to see. I feel out of control right now. I can't control this. I can't do anything about this. We have to hear the same message, the same word that the pastor spoke to the Hebrews that we're speaking to ourselves. I don't see what I want to see. So what? I see him. And he goes on to explain why it is mission critical that he is the one we would see. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. And now the light bulb's starting to go off. It's not an either or, was this thing in the, uh, the Psalms that you're quoting, was that about Jesus or was that about mankind? No, it was both. Yes, it was fully about mankind, but it's also finding its fulfillment in Jesus. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. That's not saying Jesus is less than an angel. What he's saying there is Jesus skipped the rung of angels. There's, there's God, there's angels, there's earth, and then there's us down here. He's saying Jesus became down here on planet earth. He skipped the rung of angels. So in the heavenly hierarchy, he jumps over angels, comes all the way down, humiliates himself as a human being on earth. God made flesh, made lower than angels. Namely, 
He's like, so nobody knows or is confused about anything I'm talking about. The him is namely Jesus. This is the first time that the author of Hebrews mentions Jesus' actual name. Up until this point, he's called him son, 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 magnificent one, all those types of things. But here, he, he mentions him by name to express to us not just the divinity of Jesus, not just the fact that he's the radiance of God's glory, not just that he is the exact imprint of God, but to say he is also one of you. He's felt what you felt. He's walked where you've walked. He said what you've said. He's been betrayed like you have. He's felt anxiety. He's felt fear. He took it all to the very last drop on the cross because he has a name and he's crowned with glory and honor. Here's why. Because of the suffering of death. Philippians 2, 6 to 11 tells us the type of attitude we're supposed to have. He says, our attitude should be in humility like Christ who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage, but he let go of it, took on the very nature, not just of a human, but the lowest form of a human, a slave. And because of his humility, God exalts him to the highest of heights so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess because the suffering of death, he gets the crown of glory and honor. So that, and this is where we come into the play, so that, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Taste death, death for everyone. What you need to understand is when it says taste death for everyone, what he's not saying is Jesus just tasted it like it was a sample at Costco, saying he took it to the very last drop. See, this is what gives us some hope. This is what gives us a promise. So we can look at this Jesus who took on all of our sin, who took on all of our shame, who took on all the punishment that we deserved. This is why I can look at my life and the things that are going on down here, things that I can't control, things that I don't even really know like how even to measure them down here. And I can go, I'm okay with them not being like I want them to be because I know Jesus has conquered the thing that all of those led to. So think about the things that you can't control. The reason you're so fearful of them and the reason we freak out about stuff is because what do we think they're eventually gonna lead to? Death. The thing that he has swallowed up. That's why I quoted this passage to you guys last week and read it, read it to you. Jesus was talking to his disciples when they were getting ready to face hardships from people. And he said, listen, now, I get you're afraid, but why be afraid of people who can only kill your body? Why not fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell? It was his way of saying, there is an aspect of who you are that is greater than your flesh and bones. And the world may be able to destroy your body, but I have tasted death through not just my body, but I have, been eat I have felt the full separation from the Father God. I took on every drop of every sin that you ever committed and I drank full the cup of the judgment and wrath of God. I swallowed it down for your sake. I didn't just taste test it. I experienced every last drop so that you can be sure that the worst thing that could ever happen to you is also at the exact same time, the best thing that could ever happen to you. Fine, world, kill my body. Fine, cancer, take me out. The worst thing you can do to me is exactly the best thing you can do to me, to put me face to face with my Father, my Savior. 
And this is where we, this is where we go, huh, I cannot freak out anymore. I'm okay. Can we just say that together? As a, as a, like, let's have group therapy. Here we go. One, two, three. I'm okay. I'm okay. <laughs> and like, I know you, you know, you talk to people out in the hallways, you come in, how you doing? I'm okay. No, like, I'm okay. Like, no matter what happens, I'm okay. Death has been tasted and swallowed, not spit out. I'm okay. I'm okay. Because now I don't have to live this life running and racing after significance. Here's why. I'm really significant now because what Jesus is picking up on when he inspires the author of Hebrews to write this is that what one man couldn't do in Adam, Jesus has now done. Jesus has become the true and greater Adam. That's why Paul said this in Romans 5, 17. It is because of one man's sin, Adam. Remember, Adam's the one who originally said, hey, listen, I want you to have rule and dominion. I want you to, like, you're gonna be in charge. And through one man's trespass, bite of the fruit, death reigned through that one man. Messed it up for everybody. And up until that point, it was really messed up. Somebody had to come in and fix it because we couldn't. If that's how it happened, if death came from one guy, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, that's through Jesus, reign in life through the one man, Jesus. He's saying, Jesus is the true and greater Adam. Jesus did what Adam could not do, what you would never have been able to do either. You would have bit the fruit just as soon as he did. But Jesus comes in and he walks through the same world that Adam was brought into, yet without sin. And if one man ruined it for all of us, one man, Jesus, saves it for all of us. Ephesians takes it even a step further. See if you can remember this from our, our journey through Ephesians. It says, and God raised us up. This is us who are in Christ. Raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So Jesus is the right hand of God. And apparently we're like a seat to the left, which is wild to think about. You haven't, there's nothing you've done this week that compares to that reality. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Again, to understand all this, we have to live within this tension between the already and the not yet. Because you're sitting here reading this verse and going like, bro, I'm not seated with Jesus. My butt's in McDonough. I'm right here. But what you need to understand is you are already with him. Legally, if you are in Christ, the part of you that is the most of God, true and real part of you, if you are in Christ, that part of you has a seat saved. It is as if you are already there. Legally, that is where you are at right now. Now, you live in this not yet where your butt's still in this seat. You're still experiencing the things you experienced down here. And it's Jesus' way of saying, you will rule and you will reign and he's trying to help these people understand that God is not giving that task to angels, that God is giving that task to human beings. That's why he made his son not become a virgin of an angel. He made his son become what? One of us, mankind. And then being in made in the very nature of man, he did not consider equality God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. So that... Eventually, you could experience, I could experience, we could collectively experience what it looks like to see and savor this God who made himself nothing, but then because he's exalted, has everything at our fingertips so that we, we, we are now the ones who rule and reign in this earth. Again, I think that should do something for your self-esteem. It should do something. It should make you feel this. 
that in Christ, God's original intention and his ultimate attention is achieved. What was his original intention? That you would rule and, rubber, rule and reign and govern and magnify and glorify him through doing that. <laughs> and we did, weren't able to pull this off, okay? But in Christ, the ultimate attention is actually achieved. That we don't do this in and of ourselves, that Christ comes and is the one who we get to do this again with. I continue to pound this note over and over and over again. Jesus did not come so that you could live a good life for him. Jesus came so that we could live with him lives. God's ultimate intention is that you would not reign for him, that you would not reign on his behalf. His ultimate intention is that we, and this is wild to think about, we would rule and reign with him. And that, guys, is what gives us significance. And this is a word, this is a catchy word in our, in our day and age. You maybe don't realize this, but many of the things that you're doing right now, the clothes you're buying, the debt you're going into, the DMs you're sending, the jobs you're taking or not taking, the investments that you're making, many of them are tied back to your pursuit of this word, significance. I wanna feel like I am somebody. I wanna feel like I matter. I wanna feel like I'm important. I want people to wanna be like I am. I wanna make the cut. I wanna be important. And so we do what we do because we're chasing after this. But friend, what I'm trying to hopefully illuminate to you today is the same thing this pastor was trying to illuminate to the people in the Hebrews was your significance. Guys, it cannot come from what you do. Your significance does not come from who you have in your corner. Your significance does not come from your bank account. Your significance doesn't come from your ability to populate the earth with a bunch of kids, your ability to have a lot of money. Your significance comes from none of those things. Your significance comes from what the significant Savior did for you so that you could be in him. That is where we receive salvation. So in regards to this, we've got to grab this. You can experience salvation in a moment, but you'll spend the rest of your life discovering its significance. The problem for us is we get saved in a moment and then we're like, thank you, Jesus, for saving me from hell. And then we go live our nice American lives in a culture that says be as significant as you possibly can. And in that vain pursuit of worldly significance, we neglect the salvation that he gave us. That's, what, that's the whole point of this passage. Your significance is not found in what you do post salvation in and of yourself for yourself. Your significance comes from going, oh my God, literally, you have saved me. I will spend the rest of my life unpacking, understanding, peeling layer after layer of the onion of your grace away till I get to this place where I see and savor the significance that you, the God of the universe, would save a wretch like me. Till I see the significance of the blood, till I see the significance of Good Friday, till I see the significance of prayer, till I see the significance of justification, till I see the significance of being a father, a mother, a husband, and working in this world, till I see the significance of my salvation, I will not look at anything else because I want to understand and know how significant this is. And when we do that, what happens, guys, is we get eyes locked with Jesus. So throw us in the fire. I don't care if I see fire, I see Jesus. Throw us in the lion's den. I don't care if I'm with lions. I see Jesus. Throw us into unemployment. I don't care. I, I see Jesus. Throw us into chemotherapy. I don't care. I see Jesus. Throw us into divorce. I hate it. It's terrible. It's awful. But I still see Jesus. 
throw us into infertility. Huh? It is what it is, but I see Jesus. Throw us, whatever I'm in, I see Jesus. And, And I know that he may not save me from cancer. He may not save me from divorce. He may not save me from infertility. He may not save me from unemployment. He may not save me from debt. But he has saved my soul. He has tasted death for me. But these things can't take that away. And this is is the hope that we live in, guys. This is the place where we just sit and we savor this reality that you have not been just saved from the bad things, but you have been saved for the good things. Now, this is where the good things come into context. Because it's like, well... (laughs) You're bashing me for having a good marriage. You're bashing me for having, you know, kids that behave. You're bashing me for having a job. And, and, you know, my whatever equivalent to a yoke of oxen is. Like, we're getting in trouble for these good things. No, 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 no. You were saved from making those things your God. And now you're saved for using all of those good things to magnify him as a true, righteous, perfect, holy God. Now you can finally see all those good things that you have in your life in the context of the great thing that you have in Christ. And then you rest easy because death has been tasted for you, which is a great place to transition into communion. I think it's so fitting that when Jesus inspires the Holy Scripture to be written, he would include a passage like this that says, he tasted death and then would institute this practice in his church that is communion where every week, we would gather together and do what? Taste symbols that remind us of his death so that we would remind ourselves as we taste and as we see a symbol of death, that there is one who didn't just take a symbol of death, but there is one who took on fullness of all the things that our sin deserved. And as you taste this weird purple Kool-Aid and solar wafer, we're reminded that I did not have to go through what he went through. So I refuse to put myself through it here. And I surrender to his control, his rule, his reign. He's the one who's crowned with glory and honor. I'm not in charge anymore. No matter if what I see is what I wanna see, I will lock my eyes with Jesus and see him. And if you're here today and you never put your faith and your hope and your trust in Jesus, I want you to know that at this moment, if you have not surrendered to him, then this death that he tasted for you is not yours yet. You will taste the death. You will taste what it means. You will experience the fullness of what it means to be separated from God. And friend, you do not have to experience that. He tasted it so that you would not have to. For the great tiger that is sin, death, pain, manipulation, and shame, Jesus comes and he takes the claws out of the tiger and he takes the sting out of death. And he says, what death could do to you cannot kill you. Your soul is gonna spend eternity somewhere. It will either spend eternity separated from the Father and destruction in hell, or your soul will spend eternity with the one who tasted death so you would never have to, so that you could live eternally with him forever. If you want to surrender your life to him, I'd invite you to 
to pray and to ask Jesus to be your Lord, to be your Savior right here in these moments. And I invite you, even as the, the band gets ready to play this song, there's nothing but the blood of Jesus, that you would surrender to that blood and that you would give your life to him. And I'll be back there in the back. And if you wanna take that first step of surrendered faith into the waters of baptism, I'll be, I'll be back there. I wanna invite you to do that, to make that step today. We have everything you would ever need to be able to take that step, to not wait and to move forward, full surrender. Say, I can't, I can't keep controlling my life anymore. I, I, I'm doing a terrible job at it. I wanna surrender. I, I'm, tired, I'm tired of looking around and, and hoping that when I open my eyes back up again, I'm gonna see, see things going my way. I'm gonna close my eyes and open back up and see Jesus and run after him. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you. I pray you move in the hearts of your people today, whether it be a coming back or taking the first step. I pray that you would lead them to what is the next step of faith for them whether it be the step into the waters of baptism or step into the full admittance of them being their own Lord and Savior through communion. Move us towards you, Jesus. We cannot do this without you. And we are in desperate need of you. As we taste this juice, taste this bread, let us sit in holy reverence of the one who tasted death for us so that we could taste life forever around the great banquet with you, our master.